Good morning, Christ community. Good to see you all. Um, hopefully you all had a, a good Thanksgiving. Uh, and, and also, for you college students who are here, welcome back. Hopefully you've enjoyed a break from eating large amounts of unhealthy food by eating more large amounts of unhealthy food. So hopefully it's been a good break. But uh, it's good to have, have you all back, and hopefully you did have a wonderful Thanksgiving with friends and family. Um, I did. I had a lovely time. We, we celebrated with my wife's family and then my family. And last night we gathered with, with my family, and we're, we're loud, is a nice way of saying it. And, and one of my favorite things about when we gather together is we're, inevitably there's a moment where we're sitting around, you know, the living room or the, the dining room table, and we're just sharing stories from our childhood. And, and there are a lot of stories to share, and we inevitably try to embarrass one another, and it's just, it's just a fun family tradition. So instead of being thankful for each other, we humiliate one another. It's a... <laughs> a unique tradition. But, uh, but we just have a great time, and, and last night was, was uh, no rare occasion. We had some fun time just sharing stories. And, but, but it's also a time when I realize how terrible my memory is, because there are times when I'll hear a story, and I'm in it, and I should remember it. Like, like hey, remember when we did that really crazy, ridiculous thing? And I'm like, I have no idea. So either I've done too many ridiculous things or my memory is just fading. And it just happens on occasion. When I gather with my friends, they'll tell me something we did in high school. I'm like, I seriously have no idea. Like, remember we got those tattoos of dragons on our forehead or whatever? And we never did that, clearly. But, uh, but it's just like, I should remember these things. And, and some memories I do remember. There are some things that stick whether I want them to stick or not. And one memory in particular was when I was about nine or ten or so, um, my, my little brother Aaron and I and my mom went over to this family's house for lunch. We just met them. I, didn't, I don't really remember meeting them before. And so we're hanging out in the backyard with some of their sons, and they're about our age. And one of the kids who's about my age came up to me, and literally, like, we haven't really interacted much before, and this is how he decides to try to, like, get to know me. He comes up to me and he just goes, do you believe in demons? I was just like, oh my goodness, let's... Uh, Let's talk about the weather or sports before we get to demonic presence. Or, you know, it was just kind of a big jump, you know? And I was like, I, I don't, I don't, maybe. I mean, I like pizza, and I don't know. I don't know. I have no category for demons at the age of nine. And I was like, I've watched Ninja Turtles, and my mom says I shouldn't, so yeah, I guess. And so, so I'm like, yeah, I guess, I guess so. And then, so I, I just try to change subjects, but then he persists. He's like, I believe in demons. I was like, oh, okay. I, I don't know. I was just kind of getting a little scared. And then he says, in fact, I see demons. And I was like, oh, okay, now, now I am terrified. I'm very terrified. And then he even just pushes, and I don't know if he's just pulling my chain or just trying to freak me out or whatever, because I see a demon in this tree. And I'm like, okay. I'm like 90% sure there's not a demon in this tree, but I was terrified and just pretended to like, you know, need to go to the bathroom or something and went inside. So I just avoided that whole weird interaction. So just lesson learned to you young kids, don't begin that way to start friendships. It just doesn't work. It's not really effective. But the point is that this, this view, and I don't know how true he held to this view of seeing and believing in demons to this degree, but, but that's kind of a radical extreme on this side. And, you know, we're chuckling about it, and rightly so. It is kind of silly. But, but I think that there's an equal and opposite error that we may probably, in our context, probably find ourselves in more than in this category. And that's the idea that we may not believe in demons to that degree, but what I'm guessing is that we may are on the side of not believing in demons enough or in the presence of evil spirits. 
And in, in, in the introduction to his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis kind of gives us these two dangerous opposite views. And if you've never read The Screwtape Letters, it's a, it's a fictional dialogue that Lewis wrote between a, a leader demon named uh, Screwtape writing to his nephew Wormwood on how to effectively tempt your human clients or patients. And Lewis says this in the introduction. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, like I said, most of us, I'm guessing, and, and I don't, we're, a lot of you are probably in just different areas of the spectrum of faith, but, but maybe the idea of a personal God is a little bit easier to grasp. We like that idea. But when we talk about a real personal devil, well, that's a little bit more bizarre. It seems more primitive. It's mythical. And it, we just really, is there a demon in red tights and a pitchfork chase, uh, chasing us around? Well, probably not. But, but we probably err more on that side of not believing in demons enough. And what I would say is that if that's where we are, then we are positioning ourselves in a place where we are more susceptible to attack. Because just like in any battle or any fight, if you are unaware of your enemy, you have a great disadvantage. And so as we think about, you know, a common phrase or term we hear kind of in church circles, this idea of spiritual warfare, what is it? What do we mean by it? How do we engage in it? And, and we all find ourselves, whether you are a Christian or not, we all find ourselves in this great battle. And, and I think it's actually appropriate that we're talking about this. My brother reminded me, I had no idea this was a real thing, but this apparently was rivalry weekend. I didn't know that was a real thing in like college sports where you had these major college rivalries going against each other. There were some crazy games, but I think it's pretty appropriate that we're now talking about this great battle on rivalry weekend between the forces of good, the forces of evil, in the truest sense and so this morning, we're going to look at this great battle from the text of Ephesians 6. And if you've been a part of Christ's community for a while, you probably know this. If not, if you're a visitor or if you've just been falling asleep this whole year, you know that we, you haven't known that we've been going through the whole Bible as a reading plan, as a habit to kind of form daily Bible reading as a discipline in our lives. And we're preaching through the same reading schedule. And we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians this morning. And, and we're going to be looking at this idea of the great battle by looking first at the battle plan, how our enemy tries to attack us. We'll then look at the battlefield, how we then engage in this battle. And then lastly, what is the battle cry? What is the hope of victory? And as I said earlier, that these two opposite views of looking at demonic forces, we may find ourselves more over here because we like having natural or, or scientific explanations to things, and rightly so. I mean, science gives us great input. But I think if we are to err on the side of saying, you know what, I just, the idea of a personal devil is just kind of crazy. What I believe that way of thinking will lead to is the idea that really there's no such thing as evil at all. That if everything can be explained by natural causes or scientific reasoning, and I'm not putting science or religion against each other by any means, but, but if all things can be explained by the natural then what we perceive to be evil in the world, things like racism, things like murder and war and slavery, these things are only the appearance of evil. They are simply the cause of psychological and emotional disruption or societal discord or whatever it may be. There's really no evil there. But we know we have this intuition in our hearts when we see things that are evil, 
we know that there's something deeper going on. To say that it is all explained by natural causes is to kind of be naive about the reality of our world. Or as a famous playwright, this guy, he wrote a lot of plays, his name was Bill Shakespeare. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but old Bill Shakespeare, he said that there are far more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. That was from Hamlet. And yes, the youth pastor quoted Shakespeare in his sermon. Proud of that one. But anyway, the point is, is that we may not see all of the evils that exist in our world, but there is far more going on in this great battle that we are aware of. And so this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 6 and this great battle. And just to kind of set some context, Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a, was a city that was very much steeped in um, magic and spiritualism and a lot of mystical practices. And like most Greco-Roman cities and cultures, they had a temple that was devoted to one of the gods or goddesses that was worshipped in the day. And they were devoted, the Ephesians were devoted to Artemis, who was a goddess, whose name was also Diana. So no offense to Dianas, or maybe that's a compliment. I'm a goddess. But, uh, but Artemis was their goddess. And they were obsessed with Artemis, so much so that they built this huge temple to her. And to kind of give a context, it's four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So you've seen, you're familiar with the Parthenon in Athens, but that, that temple devoted to Artemis was four times the size of this temple. And so these people loved Artemis. And in addition to that, twice a week, there would be this parade uh, through Ephesus, starting in the temple, going through the city and coming back. Twice a week, there'd be this parade for Artemis, which is just really intense. And I was just like, man, we don't, we don't even do that for Jesus. So these people really must have liked Artemis. And so pretty intense devotion to this God. And they thought that by appeasing Artemis, by worshiping Artemis, that Artemis would be able to protect them from the evil spirits that they were very much aware of. And so this is the culture that Paul is preaching the gospel to. This is the culture that he's trying to plant churches in. And so this is where we then turn. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, whether paper or electronic, to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at first this battle plan. How does the devil fight against us? What does his attack plan, his battle plan look like? So as Connor read for us, I just want to read again verses 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now when Paul says we do not war against flesh and blood, he's not saying that there's no such thing as physical evil. Paul was very aware of physical evil. I mean, he was in prison. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He understood real physical evil and harm. But rather what he's saying is that the, the physical manifestations of evil that we see, we have to understand that there is something far greater, that our enemy is not just a people, a nation, or an ideology or philosophy. Our enemy is an unseen force that exists to destroy us. The enemy we wage war against is not of flesh and blood. So it's important for us to understand that, yes, it's manifested in physical ways, but our enemy, our true enemy, is an unseen evil force, and he is a personal, personal being known as the devil. And Paul then gives us a little bit of a description of how this enemy 
uh, crafts his battle plan against us. And he is not, maybe contrary to how we think, he's not like the Tasmanian devil who, who's kind of spinning around and creating chaos and wreaking havoc just kind of in this really bizarre, haphazard way. The devil, as opposed to being chaotic, is actually a tactical warfare genius. He knows what he's doing. When Paul says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes, it really started to reframe the way I thought about how the devil attacks us. The word schemes, the Greek word there is methodius, which is where we get the word method or methodical. And that's really what, what Paul is trying to communicate here. The devil methodically, systematically plans out his attacks against us. You could even say that they're tailor-fitted to our weaknesses, to the way we are tempted. He knows our weaknesses probably better than we know them ourselves. And he attacks us with that knowledge. He knows where we are weak. He knows where we are tempted. You see, the devil is not interested ultimately in getting you to worship him. That's not his aim. That's not his goal. He is not concerned with heightening your awareness of his power and presence in your life. On the contrary, he probably wants to keep you away from that idea that he is real. Because the less you know of your enemy, the more advantage your enemy has. In, in the 90s, there was a movie that became pretty popular called The Usual Suspects. And it was kind of one of these crazy like thrill, thriller movies that had this twist plot at the end. And there's a line in that movie that's kind of become popularized. I don't think it originated there. There's a character, his name's Verbal Kent, and he's describing this criminal villain named Kaiser Soze. That's his name. You've got to say it like that. And, and describing Kaiser Soze, Verbal Kent says that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I think that is exactly where he wants us to be, keeping us ignorant, agnostic, or naive to his presence and power. He's not concerned about heightening our awareness of him, but rather his ultimate goal in all of his methods and schemes and attacks, his ultimate goal is keeping us from the presence and power of Christ. That's what he does. He doesn't care the means by which he does it. He's only concerned with the end. As I mentioned, C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, which is just a great book, by the way. I'd encourage you to pick, pick up a copy. But in that book, we see this idea developed in the, the dialogue between Screwtape and Wormwood, where Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, and he says this. He says, do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And keep in mind, these are devil's writings, so the enemy is actually God. The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. This is the scheme. This is the plan, the battle plan that our enemy crafts against us. He couldn't care less if you worshipped him or, or engaged in all this rebellious activity, provided the only thing he cares about is if we are distracted and drawn away from Christ. This has been his plan all along from the beginning in Genesis 3, where we see the serpent enter into the garden, tempting Eve and Adam. We see his same plan. He's been using the same tricks. The serpent comes in, in Genesis 3, verse 1, we read this. Now the serpent, 
who is a representation of the devil, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. And we're not talking about like glue and glitter here. He's, he's scheming, okay? He's not crafty in that way. <laughs> the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And that's how it begins. He doesn't enter the scene and say, I'm the devil, worship me. No one would buy that. No one would be like, oh, okay, all right, well, I'll follow you. He, he just subtly creeps in and starts to cast doubt on the authority of God's word to such a degree that they start to like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe God didn't mean that. In fact, maybe he's keeping us from something good. And then they start to desire things that God told them to not desire. And they start to want to be God themselves. And idolatry takes over their hearts. And sin is born in humanity. All through the scheming works of the devil. Who didn't come in trying to destroy things right away. But thoughtfully, patiently, methodically. Creates doubt in our minds about the goodness of God. Sin is born. And the world falls apart. This is how our enemy works. He's not interested in getting us to worship him. He is only interested in keeping us from worshiping the one true God. You see, by by preoccupying our minds and our hearts with lesser things, even good things, but by, by the devil preoccupying our minds, distracting us with lesser things like fashion or sports or phones or promotions or popularity by preoccupying our minds with these lesser things to the point that it draws us away from Christ, the devil has accomplished a goal that would have been the same as if we would have installed him as our king. By preoccupying our minds to such a degree with with lesser things, not even bad things, but by filling our minds with such things to the point that it distracts us from Christ, the same goal is accomplished as if we would have installed Satan as our king. To put it simply in another way, the person who worships the devil and the person who doesn't worship Christ in some sense is in the same boat. The devil couldn't care which one you're in as long as you are not worshiping Christ. That's all he cares about. He's a deceiver. His name, the word devil, diabolos, literally means to deceive. Our enemy, his, word, his name means liar, the act of lying. And he will do all that he can to get us away from the truth by any means necessary. And his favorite modes of deception are through temptation and accusation. And I'm borrowing some of this from, from a book called um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It was by, written by a Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooks a long time ago. And in it, Brooks describes the various ways that we are attacked and tempted. And he says, basically, the, the, our enemy, the devil, deceives us through temptations and accusations. Temptations are where the devil tells us that God's commands are not for our good. That's the deception right there. God's commands are not for your good. He's keeping you from something. Don't live that way. Live this way. Engage in this activity. Do this because God's trying to keep you from a real life of joy. He deceives us in temptation by saying that God's commands are not for our good. Accusations are, is the deception of him saying that God's promises are not for our good. 
that his promise of mercy and forgiveness and grace, that no, 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 that doesn't apply to you. That only applies to super uber Christians who kept with open here all year long or something like that. That's what he's trying to say. No, just kidding. But the point is, is that he's trying to accuse us to believe and buy into the fact that no, 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 God's grace, there's a limit and that you have done way too much to actually be a recipient of his forgiveness. And I won't go into a lot of detail here, but Brooks gives a whole bunch of lists and examples of the ways in which the devil tempts us and accuses us. And I'll just share a few. Temptations, the first one, is that he shows us the sins of others by keeping us from seeing our own sin. This keeps us either self-righteous at best, where we're just like, look at these people, look at these people. I'm way better than this person. Or it allows us to start to play this kind of comparison game where we're like, well, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm at least not as bad as this sinner. You know, I know I, I, know I do this, but man, I, I'm not nearly as bad as he is. So as long as I'm not the worst sinner in my church, in my community group or whatever, I'm good. And so the devil keeps us in that world of temptation tied to our sin by convincing us that we're okay because we're better than so-and-so. That's one of the ways that he tempts us. The second is by showing us all of the joys of sin without the consequences. And this is very effective because there's something, there's something about in temptation, whatever it may be, even if it's a sin that you have habitually found yourself falling into, it's almost like when you're tempted, you almost completely forget the shame and the guilt and the damaging effects that it has on relationships in your life. And you only see the temporal joy that will be had. And then you engage in that sin, you yield to temptation. And yes, there is a temporal happiness, but it fades. And what is left is that guilt and that shame and the destruction to your relationships in your life. He shows us, as, as Brooke says it, he shows us the bait and not the hook. Now, and one, one other, or as regards to the accusations. So those are temptations. In regards to accusations. We see that, that he tries to convince us of these lies. One is that he tries to show us, or he tries to get us to obsess over our previous sins in life. He gets us to focus on who we were. The devil loves the phrase. He loves when we say, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. He loves that. Because what we are saying is that we are still living in our old ways. We are still seeing ourselves as defined and as identified by who we were, by what we have done, and by what has been done to us. Instead of, if we are in Christ, living in the reality of who we are now because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. By the person who says, no, I'm still in my sin, I'm, I'm focusing on what has been done to me or what I've done, they are not living in the freedom that Christ provides and the devil is very satisfied with that. Another accusation that he throws at us is that he gets us to question our faith, that, that you would not, you couldn't be serious about thinking that you're a real Christian if you're doing this. No real Christian would, would do the things you're doing, think the things you're thinking, say the things that you say. How could you possibly believe that God's grace has come to you? No, no, no. You are very much outside of grace. And we start to hear that slowly but surely and it seeps in and we start to believe it and embrace it and then live into it and all of a sudden we find ourselves, yeah, I guess, I guess it was never true. And we live into those lies and we hear those accusations and we believe them to be truth about who we are. And then one other, oh, I guess this is a temptation, sorry this is out of order, but one last temptation is that 
is that the devil tries to tempt us by getting us to compare good areas of our life to bad areas. And we justify our actions by saying, well, yeah, yeah, I know, I know that, that I've done these things over here, but I'm so good in this area. I, yeah, I, I, know, I know that I look at pornography, I've cheated on my tests, I've cheated on my taxes, I've cheated on my spouse, but I'm a generous person. I've given so much of my time and money away, it's got to even out at some point, right? And we feel justified. And we stay, instead of feeling conviction and mourning over our sin and trying to put it to death, we find ways to manage it and justify it. And the devil, once again, is happy. And I could go on and on. There are so many other ways that I think the devil works in our life. But, but, but it's important for us to then ask the question, okay, we now know our enemy and how he works and his tactical um, battle plan. But how then do we engage in this battle? And so the battlefield, how do we fight against the devil? And the, the, the two things I would say really quickly is that we have to know our enemy and we have to know our weaknesses. Any kind of fight or battle you're in, those are imperative. You have to know your enemy and you have to know your weaknesses. A, a, a little story about me, my first fight I ever got in, I think I was in like fourth grade, was with a kid named Curtis, Curtis Hughes. Hopefully you're not here, Curtis. <laughs> but... Uh, be terrified. Uh, but, but Curtis, we, we got in this, this kind of like argument at school, and instead of like in the heat of the moment fighting, I scheduled it. It was like, tomorrow, my house, 445. It was like really specific, you know. Ninja Turtles is on at four, and I got to watch that, and then eat a snack, and then, then we can fight. And so, so we scheduled. He comes over to my house. It's 445. We're about to fight. And a little piece of information about me. I was convinced, and maybe still to this day, is that I was a martial arts expert. <laughs> It is an inconsequential, insignificant detail that I've never taken a karate class or anything like that. But in my mind, I was a ninja expert, okay? I played Mortal Kombat a lot. I was really, I was, I was convinced. So, so in my mind, the fight was going to go like this. Curtis would come running at me. I would jump in the air, do a roundhouse kick to his throat right here. And he would fall down, and it would be over. Done. Drop mic, walk away. And, but it didn't go that way exactly. So Curtis comes running at me. And I'm like, oh, here it is. Here's the move. And it's about here when I'm tackled by Curtis from the back. And what felt like a solid month and a half of just pounding me in the face just constantly. And I'm like, what happened? Oh. And so, one, I didn't know my enemy because I come to find out Curtis had been in a lot of fights that year uh, and was good at it. Uh, and two, I was not a ninja. I was not aware of my weaknesses or stupidity. So tying that in here... As we think about our battle against our enemy, we do. We must know our enemy. We must know how he works, but we must also be aware of where we are tempted, where we are weak. And when Paul begins to urge the Ephesians to put on the armor of God, I think that's what he's communicating. Look, when we put on the armor of God, we are showing, one, we know our enemy. We know that we have an enemy and that we are in a battle and that we must wear armor to guard ourselves from him. But it also communicates we know our weakness, that we must wear armor to protect ourselves, that without it we are susceptible to attack. So the battlefield, how do we fight against the devil? We must know our enemy, we must know our weakness. But the other thing here is that I want to make clear that the armor of God that Paul is teaching, he's not giving us a list of things that we need to use, like, all right, you need this and this and this. Rather, Paul is describing, in the illustration of the armor of God, he is describing what he has already described in Ephesians, the new life in Christ. 
He's not saying, all right, do this, do this, do this, and do this. But rather, he's essentially, in this illustration, describing the gospel and how it changes our lives. A a way of saying it, it's it's like that the gospel is a diamond, and he's essentially turning the diamond so that we can see it in a new light, a new angle, a new facet, and it shines in a unique way. It's the same diamond. And that's what Paul is doing with the armor of God. Remember, the enemy we fight is a deceiver, and his attacks are all rooted in lies. And so the way we battle our enemy is by believing and trusting and reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. To put on the armor of God is to put on Christ, to put on the gospel. And the reason I say this, the reason I think this is true is that when you look back in Ephesians 4, Paul basically is saying the exact same thing just in a new way. In in chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, Paul begins by saying, put on, which is the same Greek word there as he begins in Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God. Here in verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now notice, in both places, in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6, Paul begins by saying, put on, put on the new self, put on the, put on the armor. And then once the armor is on, in both places he begins with truth. He says, now that you have put the new self on, speak the truth. Now that you are about to put the armor on, what's the first thing he tells them to put on? The belt of truth. That's the first thing we must embrace, the truth of the gospel. The, the gospel is true because we are battling an enemy of lies. And in order to defeat lies, we must know the truth of the gospel. There's a reason why Paul begins this way. Then he introduces us to the breastplate of righteousness. And what what this is, it's another turning of the diamond. And he says, the breastplate of righteousness, this is what covers us now. We are no longer weakened, condemned enemies of God. We are now marked and covered by the righteousness of Christ. This is what defines us. This is what protects us. So that when we hear the lies of you are still guilty, you are still in your sin, you are still condemned, we boldly say no. We are covered in the righteousness of Christ. This is what protects me from the lies of the devil. And then Paul says, put on your feet the readiness to share the gospel of peace. The readiness to share the gospel of peace, meaning that the gospel, yes, it is true. Yes, it is our righteousness, but it is intended to be shared and proclaimed. And and I think that this is effective in our battle against the evil one because what we find is that when we share the things that we delight in, our joy in those things increases. When we share the things that we delight in, our joy in them increases. That's why on every website, every video, every picture online, there's a feature to share it. You can Facebook it, you can Instagram it, you can Twitter it. There's so many out there, various ways of sharing. Why? Because we enjoy sharing the things that we enjoy. And our joy in those things increases. To illustrate in another way, recently I was in the van with my two oldest daughters, Lula and Jane. They're five and three. And we were going on a longer trip. It was about an hour. So I let them watch uh, Cinderella. And somebody's like, oh, witchcraft. <laughs> ah, just kidding. Uh, but um, we're watching Cinderella. They're watching this. I'm not. Like, uh, but they're watching Cinderella. And, and it's during their favorite scene. The mice are singing, Cinderella, Cinderella. Night and day of Cinderella. It's a great scene. They love it. 
And Lula, my oldest daughter, she's, she's just like elated, like, oh, this is awesome. And there's this moment where she, she pats Jane. She's like, Jane, are you watching this? And it was just this adorable little scene. But she wasn't trying to make sure that her sister was watching. Like, hey, make sure you're watching this. That, that wasn't her motive. She was just like so overjoyed by this scene that she, it just manifested in sharing it. Like, I, I want to share it with somebody. I want to make sure that you're seeing what I'm seeing. The reason we do that is because our joy increases when we share the things that we delight in. And the same is true for the gospel. How do we defeat the lies of the devil? By proclaiming the truth of the gospel, yes, to ourselves, but also to others. Not just to bring others into the truth, but as a way to affirm and strengthen our own faith in the goodness and the promises of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Then Paul gives us the shield of faith. And the shield is is imagery used in the Old Testament a lot of God's provision and protection. And Paul says it is the shield of faith, meaning that it is not our faith that protects us, like my faith, but it is my faith in the promises of God. The reason I can find victory against the attacks of the devil is not by my strength, but in my faith in the strength of my God. That's why in verse 10, Paul begins in chapter 6 saying, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not in your own. The shield of faith, when we trust in the promises of God, we can defeat the flaming arrows of the lies of the enemy. And then the helmet of salvation. Paul says, put on salvation like a helmet. And this this imagery here, what Paul is saying, it's one of the only times that Paul speaks of salvation in a future or in a present tense. Typically, he refers to you know, salvation that is to come, the promises of God manifested in the new heavens and new earth. But, but here, Paul is using salvation in a present tense, meaning that your salvation, the work of Christ in saving you from your sin, doesn't just give you a hope for the future, but it gives you a victory now in your battles. Be strong in the Lord. Trust in the salvation that he has granted you. Put on salvation like a helmet. Putting on salvation then means to not just hope in what is to come, but it means to put on the new identity that we have in Christ, which gives us the power to defeat our enemy and his deceitful attacks. And then lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which is both an offensive and defensive weapon that we can protect ourselves, but it is also meant to be seen as an attack. And when Paul says the word of God here, Almost every time when Paul says word of God, he means the gospel. He doesn't just mean the whole canon of scripture. He doesn't mean the whole Bible, but he means particularly the good news of Christ. That the way we defend and attack our enemy is with the gospel. Putting on the armor of God is something that we don't just do once. It is this daily action. In some sense, you could say that what we do here as we gather is we are putting on the armor of God collectively that we come together to remind ourselves of who we are and to remind one another as we are singing these songs. Yes, we are singing to God, but we're also singing, in a sense, to one another, reminding each other of who we are in Christ. That is why we need the church in this battle, that we are brothers and sisters in arms. Last week, Pastor Andrew talked about the need for community, And how community is not just a social issue or a relational issue, but it is an issue of life and death. 
So much so that Paul in 1 Timothy 1.20, I believe, Paul says there are these two guys who were creating some serious trouble in the church. They were blaspheming God. And he says, I basically, I kicked them out. I removed them from the church because they were such a problem. And he said, and the phrase is, he says, I handed them over to Satan. We were like, dude, that's intense, Paul. I don't know you could do that. But what he's saying is that by removing them from the community, which was appropriate, by removing them from that community, they were more susceptible to the attacks of the devil. The reason we gather, the reason we need community is not so that we can enjoy some great meals together while watching football games, which is great. I'm not knocking that. I love that. But we need each other in this great battle. We gather together as a church to remind ourselves and each other of who we are in Christ. We come together to, in a sense, put on the armor of God. So so to bring this all to a close, the way we find victory on the battlefield against the schemes of the devil's battle plan is by trusting in and declaring to ourselves and to others the battle cry of the gospel, the cry of the cross of Jesus Christ where he says boldly and definitively, it is finished. It is that battle cry that we trust in. You see, the, the, the imagery that Paul's using in Ephesians 6 of the armor of God, he's not drawing it from the Roman soldiers. And neither was this a ploy by like Christian bookstores to like sell a whole bunch of like, you know, like Roman toy soldier, you know, outfits, which I owned like five of them as a kid. But, but the point that Paul is using here, he says, he's not drawing from Roman soldier imagery. He has something greater in mind. The battle cry that we trust in, the armor that he is illustrating is pointing back to a great warrior who has promised to come and defeat our enemies once and for all. In Isaiah 59, hundreds of years before Paul wrote Ephesians 6, Isaiah 59, we see the promise of this great warrior. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Paul has something much bigger in mind. He's pointing back to that our trust, our hope of victory in battle, in this great battle, is not in being strong in ourselves. It's not about our faith. It's not about our spiritual maturity. It is about our trusting and the putting on of the new self that we receive from our great warrior Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is this warrior that we remember in this season of Advent when we come together to celebrate the birth of our warrior king, Jesus Christ. This is who Paul has in mind. During Advent, we we come together to remember and reflect and rejoice in who this great warrior was and is and is yet to come. We rejoice in the fact as we sing in our Christmas hymn, Long Lay the World in Sin and Error Pining, Till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. This darkness that we are delivered from, it is not just a darkness in the world, it's a darkness that's in all of us. And our great warrior, Messiah King, has come to defeat our enemies, to take away the darkness, and to bring in a new light and a new life. As we read earlier in Ephesians, we don't war against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present evil age. And it's these rulers that Jesus defeated on the cross. As Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, very decisively and victoriously, to those of us who are in Christ, these words are true, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in our battle, as we hear the lies of temptation and accusation in all of its forms, The remedy is to not hunker down and to hide. The remedy is to not be a better person. The remedy is to proclaim to ourselves again and again what the gospel is and who we are in Christ, putting on the new self. It is about joining in the hymn writer when we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. That's putting on the armor. That's what it means to find victory in battle. We defeat the lies of the devil by resting in, trusting in, delighting in, proclaiming the truth of the gospel to ourselves and to others. It is this gospel that frees us. It is this gospel that reveals the hollowness of the devil's lies It is this gospel that compels us and draws us to gather together as believers. And it is this gospel that we come to celebrate and remember today. We come together as brothers and sisters to the Lord's table to celebrate and to remind ourselves that the victory has been won. That our great warrior has come to defeat sin and death. And so it is in this time that we celebrate, remember, rejoice, and reflect upon who Christ is and what he has done, letting go of who we were and what has been done to us and what has been done by us, and now rejoicing in, living in, celebrating in who we now are in Christ. And so I invite you to come to the Lord's table. For those of you who are part of our, uh, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but, but we do ask that, that you be a follower of Christ. And so if, if you are not a follower of Christ, what I encourage you to do is to not take the cup and the bread, but to take Christ instead. And so I invite us to come to celebrate the reality that our great warrior has come and has defeated sin and death for us. Come to the Lord's table.